Welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. This podcast will focus on fractals in math, nature, and culture. So, to start off, just what is a fractal? Um, a, a fractal is a repeating pattern in nature. Um, you can think of it as either a rule or a specific attribute um, that is repeated at different scales in nature. That was Brian Enquist, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. We'll be hearing more from him soon, along with James Brown, distinguished professor of biology at the University of New Mexico, Albuquerque. They'll be talking about their work with fractal networks in biology. We'll also be talking with Ron Eglish. Ron has studied the phenomenon of fractal patterns in African architecture and art. His fascinating experiences studying expressions of math in Africa inspired him to think of new fractal-based teaching methods for communicating math to students. But first, we'll talk to art historian Nina Samuel, curator of an exhibition here in New York City dedicated to the fractal image. Mathematically, fractals are produced by recursive equations, equations for which the output of one iteration is fed back into that same equation as an input. You can do this for an infinite number of iterations. If you use a computer program to graph your results, you'll be creating an infinitely complex image with repeating patterns at any level of detail. The pictures produced this way are often beautiful and mesmerizing, able to blur the boundary between art and mathematical evidence in intriguing ways. Now, meet Nina Samuel, a professor of art history at the Bard Graduate Center. Her background is with the Technical Image, an art historical collective in Berlin. Nina's work with them inspired her to investigate the relationship between fractals and their father, celebrated mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot. Here's Nina describing the idea behind the technical image. So it's not about the question, how do you illustrate a result after you have found something out, but it's more about the question, um, what, what is really the relation between the thinking and the image? So how does the, the, the visualization contribute to a theory or to the knowledge um, that um, is influenced by the specific way this image is designed and also by the specific image technology that um, are accessible for the scientists. Nina had the opportunity to speak with Mandelbrot on several occasions and gained rare insights into his cognitive relationship to images. This eventually inspired the exhibition The Islands of Manuel Mandelbrot, Chaos, Fractals, and the Materiality of Thinking, currently on show at the Focus Gallery of the Bard Graduate Center in New York City. The project actually emerged um, during my PhD research um, in 2008. I was in contact with Benoit Mandelbrot at the time, and I visited him in um, Cambridge uh, at IBM, where he was um, uh, still an emeritus member of the research lab. And um, I did extensive interviews with him. So I asked him about his usage of images and um, how he developed all his theories. And um, during these interviews, um, I also had the chance to look at his archives and to find already many um, images that are included today um, in the exhibition. So there was this contact in 2008. And um, uh, when I got the chance to um, teach this course at the Bar Graduate Center um, last year and when I was invited to curate this exhibition, I got in touch again with the widow of uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, who, who died actually um, two years ago. And um, I, um, I got in touch with her and asked her if the images and the objects uh, would be still in Cambridge. And um, yeah, I was very lucky actually because um, she was just in the process to um, send them to Stanford, to the archive, where they are now at the moment. 
and she was so nice and generous to um, let me browse through the object and through her through his um, archive that was uh, left exactly in the state um, um, how he left it um, after after his death and so this was really a very very fascinating um, moment because um, uh, in contrast to uh, the normal visit of an archive where you have uh, a very different way how things are organized in this case I had the unique chance really to to look at papers that um, were left, um, how they were used in in the process of research and in the process of thinking. So um, this is actually why I had the impression that I was wandering through the brains of the mathematicians. So what were some of the insights you were able to glean from your interactions with Mandelbrot? For Mandelbrot, it's very, very important to know from which background he comes, because um, he had been educated and he had grown up um, in, uh, I mean, academically educated in France um, in the 50s. And um, in this time in, in France, in the 50s, in mathematics specifically, um, images had been officially um, forbidden by the leading um, ideas. So mathematicians were supposed to work without images. In the publications, um, there had been no images, but only formulas. Um, in 58, uh, Mandelbrot came to um, the US. He emigrated. He came to IBM. He started his lifelong relationship with IBM, where he had access to um, computer graphics, to computer machines, and to a state-of-the-art uh, technology. And um, he declared very often, also when I talked with him, that um, he decided uh, to go um, to the U.S. and to leave France. Uh, one of the very um, important reasons was really that he could not stand anymore um, this kind of uh, non-iconic, anti-pictorial thinking that, that was uh, very uh, en vogue, very uh, avant-garde at this time uh, in France. One of the most um, important slogans that Mandelbrot promoted and that he um, always repeated also uh, when I talked to him actually was this phrase, seeing is believing. Um, so this was a phrase with, with which he uh, also wanted to express that um, the eye is so strong and that uh, you can convince people uh, if they see something and that just the visual is, is so important um, for research but also for um, communication that uh, yeah, the, the eyes have the power to make you to make you believe. The computer technology for imaging fractal equations was brand new at the time of Mandelbrot's research, affording Mandelbrot the opportunity to play with mathematical concepts in a whole new way. His access to um, to computer graphics made him, first of all, um, just experiment with different ways how it's possible to to visualize uh, formulas. He always declared that uh, he wanted to use first of all, computers for didactic purposes, actually, to convince people um, of his results. But um, what is interesting that in the, in the course of working with computers and computer pictures, pictures became much, much stronger for him and for his thinking that he might have thought at the beginning. And this is um, just because uh, pictures have such a big um, power to, um, to relate to theories that they, after a short time, they became really the center of soul um, uh, research and studies. So his first uh, experiments uh, in 79, when he made a, a test series about uh, a certain kind of equations, um, could look like visually. Um, you have to um, understand that in this moment, it was not at all um, uh, clear how these pictures could anyhow look like. So uh, what he saw on these pictures was a total surprise. Exploring this uncharted territory of images helped Mandelbrot to make key discoveries. Um, during his discovery of uh, the most uh, famous symbol that his name uh, is attached to the Mandelbrot set, during this um, discovery, um, actually this uh, question if uh, he could indeed believe his eyes or not, 
played um, a most important role um, during this uh, whole discovery process. Um, so um, when he actually was, um, he was going back and forth between IBM and Harvard at the time, it was in the late 70s, and he was trying to um, investigate how these complicated formulas could look like as a visualization. So what happened is that at one mo moment, it was actually happening in Harvard when he had uh, not very good equipment, it were more, uh, he had only very old machines. Um, so uh, he was uh, printing uh, computer graphics and he was looking at the results. And very often, these results, they looked dirty, they looked messy. So he saw very, uh, he, he saw many speckles and uh, spots on, on the papers, and he was just not sure if this is now something that the printing machines had produced, or if this is something that is uh, real mathematics. So is this visualized mathematics, or is it just dirt? Um, and uh, to find out, actually, he uh, zoomed into these uh, small dirt speckles, and he tried to uh, use the computer as a kind of microscope to make them bigger and, and investigate if uh, they are real. <laughs> this is even a quote he said, if they are real or if they are just dirt. What happened uh, when he zoomed into these speckles was that some um, revealed themselves to be symmetric or to, to have the same shape than the overall shape uh, of this Mandelbrot set that he has discovered. So what actually was the big discovery in this zooming into these specs was that um, he discovered that the Mandelbrot set is self-similar, which is one of the major um, features um, of uh, fractal sets. So this was really his main um, discovery, what happened in these uh, zooming uh, into these specs. So, and um, um, after he had uh, discovered this, um, actually he published for the first time um, uh, his results on the Mandelbrot set 1980 in the journal New York Academy of Science. And in this first publication, um, uh, it is really a very tragic and nearly ironic story. Um, the publisher of the journal, he thought that these little speckles, which had been his major discovery and made him so proud, actually that they are also dirt specks and just errors that the printer produced. So what happened is that the publisher actually erased these small speckles. and. Uh, uh, the first publication ended up being cleaned and being uh, not at all uh, looked not at all like a Mandelbrot uh, wanted uh, to look. Actually, uh, what is also um, very interesting is that um, in offprints that he sent to colleagues, he um, he redrew with his own hands these missing speckles, so just to prove actually that they are really there. So um, to to show that uh, what he had discovered exists, he used the media of drawing of hand drawing. Um, as a method of proof, which is really an astonishing uh, moment because um, it was not proven in the equations, it was proven in his own hand drawing that he added to a computer print. Mandelbrot called the elusive speckles islands, and they were a hotly contested issue in the mathematical field of topology. Mandelbrot believed the islands were not topologically connected to the main body of the set, since in his images they were visibly separate from the main body of the pictures. But two years after Mandelbrot's discovery, Two other mathematicians, Adrian Duati and John Hubbard, proved mathematically that the so-called islands are in fact connected. These small speckles that he had uh, discovered were actually no speckles, but they were really attached to, to this whole um, shape the Mandelbrot set. So they were not islands, how he called them. They were not uh, uh, disconnected from this uh, main body of, of this fractal set. They were actually attached. So uh, it was impossible to um, visualize the small wires or the small um, lines between the between these islands and the main set. So it was just impossible to, to visualize them because uh, the computer technology uh, did not allow to visualize them. So, uh, I think the story shows in a very um, 
drastic way these um, two different powers of the image. On the one hand, the creative power, and on the other hand, also a seductive power, because what happened here is that Mandelbrot, in a way, he got a victim of his own saying that seeing is believing because he trusted his own eyes in this moment, and he thought that what he has just seen, had just seen in the computer pictures um, is the uh, evidence. But in the end, it uh, revealed to be just um, an illusion and just something that um, he did never prove analytically, and that was just wrong in the end. I encourage you all to see Nina's exhibit for many more fascinating stories about the relations between math, art, image, and concept. And now, we're going to move on to how the concept of fractal patterns is being used in some exciting biological research. Brian Enquist and James Brown have studied the occurrence of fractal patterns in biological branching networks. These show up all over the place. Literal branches and trees are an easy example. The trunk divides into branches, which divide into smaller branches, etc. And this repeating pattern is fractal. The capillary system in mammals follows the same fractal branching laws. Brian and James have explained this nearly universal pattern based on natural selection. First, we'll talk to Brian about his work with fractals in trees and forest systems. Then, we'll talk to James about mammalian physiology. Brian. How do fractals figure into your work? Yeah, so fractals turn up in our research because they reflect the wonderful diversity of plants that we study. Um, so we can look at plants and we can study them, and we can begin then to understand um, their incredible form and function in terms of fractals. And so when we look at a plant, we see them as reflecting these branching rules. Um, and so if you, if you think about a typical tree that may be in your backyard, um, you can understand that branching in terms of these repeatable rules that are followed throughout the, the tree network itself. These fractal rules determine um, how plants look and they also determine how plants function. And if we can understand um, these rules, then um, it enables us to say something about um, how plants grow and variation across the across the world, but then also it enables us to um, to scale up. That is to go from individual measurements of the rules of branching on up to the functioning of the ecosystems. So, for example, um, we're trying to understand these fractal rules because that enables us to predict um, tree growth rate. So we can predict the growth rate of individual uh, trees. And if we then know something about the growth rate of individual trees, it turns out that these rules of branching actually ramify, so to speak, uh, to influence then um, uh, entire forests and the functioning of um, uh, entire forest ecosystems. And why is this? The, the, the underlying hypothesis is that evolution by natural selection has been operating on individuals to give them the most bang for the buck. And, and really what that means is that in order to maximally take in resources you know, from the environment, um, you need a, um, a vascular or an internal branching network that's able then to interface with the um, external environment. But yet it's um, designed, if I could use that word in, in, in such a way, that that network then has also minimized the cost of transport within within itself. So so if you think about these effective surface areas that are exchanging resources from the environment, 
on the one hand, selection has acted to try to maximize the scaling of leaf surface area or your gut surface area or your root surface area, but at the same time tried to minimize then the internal transport distances within the network that is ultimately then um, supplying uh, these effective surface areas and supplying then resources to the rest of the body. So a, um, a hierarchical branching tree that follows the principles of being space-filling and um, also follows the principle of energy minimization, then um, results or can be reflected, I should say, in these fractal branching rules. Brian's work with trees shows that these fractal patterns manifest not only in individual trees, but in entire forest systems. At the forest level, we find um, this repeatability of um, these fractal rules. It's, it's a little difficult to actually describe in words, so I'll, I'll do my best here. So what we find is that if you look at the placement of individual trees throughout the forest, it may seem very haphazard, you know, trees here, trees there, little ones here, big ones over there. But it turns out that that packing of individuals within the forest actually has um, a remarkable uh, fractal structure. And it has to do with um, what we call space filling. That is, individuals then are filling in space within the forest to try to utilize little bits of um, light or water availability here and there. And together, all of these individuals filling up um, space in order to utilize light water, nutrients, and so on, um, results in this emergent um, pattern of, of fractalness uh, within the forest. And so we see um, these fractal-like rules then um, being ramified then throughout the, the, the forest itself. So you can almost think of it as these rules of branching that are governing the placement of leaves and the placement of branching uh, branches then uh, within an individual also influencing then how these individuals um, are packing into space. This turns out to have important consequences for conservation work as well. It does. So what we, we've been trying to, um, uh, to document in detail um, in, in, in a number of actually field uh, studies is that we are using um, these, these fractal branching rules and how they ramify to structure entire communities as a, a baseline for understanding, um, I guess, what you could, you could think of as a healthy forest or a healthy ecosystem. And so these, uh, in, in a undisturbed then forest, we see uh, these fractal branching rules ramifying through um, uh, very clearly. And the result of that is that um, we see a signature in the structure of the forest in terms of the sizes of individuals and the total number of, of individuals that enables us then to ascertain um, uh, not only the, the functioning of the entire forest, but whether or not that forest is an approximate um, resource or a demographic re, uh, study state. And, and, and I know that sounds um, uh, a little complicated, but effectively what we're able to do is, is is come up with, with a more um, quantitative measure for the health than of uh, terrestrial ecosystems. When we then go into sites where we know that have been disturbed or we go into then terrestrial ecosystems that are experiencing very fast um, rates of climate change, 
we can then predict what we'd expect in the absence of those. And so the, the departure then from that baseline enables us to gauge the severity of disturbance or the severity then of climate change. Let's flesh out this idea. James, could you please give us some examples from mammalian physiology? As the mammal gets bigger and bigger, uh, it has more and more cells, and we have to design a, a vascular system that uh, can deliver oxygen and nutrients to all those cells. Okay, And the design uh, is constrained because the ancestors had a, a central heart and one big vessel, the aorta, and that's going to have to branch uh, and branch and branch into finer and finer branches uh, until we get out to the capillaries where uh, the oxygen and nutrients are actually exchanged from the uh, blood uh, to the cells. So there are a couple of uh, adaptive reasons uh, why uh, organisms have hit on this uh, fractal-like design. One of them is uh, that if you uh, work through resistance of the blood vessels, it works out that uh, you want to have a fractal branching system, uh, which is what we call area preserving. So um, as one big blood vessel branches into two, the cross-sectional area of the two daughter vessels is the same as that of the mother vessel, and that uh, maintains the same velocity of blood and uh, that allows for something complicated called impedance matching uh, so that this pulsatile wave uh, passes down through those branching vessels uh, with minimum resistance. And that means that since the resistance is minimized, the amount of energy that the heart has to expand pumping that blood uh, is minimized, and that means the amount of energy that the mammal has to spend on other important things like growth and reproduction is maximized. But the other reason, I think, which is probably equally important, is that if you've ever seen pictures of uh, uh, like a human embryo, uh, the embryo has a beating heart and functional blood vessels when it's tiny, about the length of your little finger. Uh, it already has a heart in those first few blood vessels, and it uh, needs some kind of program uh, to tell those blood vessels how to branch and branch and branch as that body grows and grows and grows uh, and acquires more and more cells and gets bigger and bigger, right? And if it has a fractal rule, uh, then it, it uh, can use the same rule for every branching. So the way you know I like to say that is that this allows the developmental program uh, to be governed by a rule table, not by a set of blueprints, you know. Every time the body gets a little bit bigger uh, and you need more branches to, to the vascular system to reach out farther and farther, uh, you don't have to have a, you know, a specific set of blueprints for the next stage. You just use the same program uh, uh, to do another set of branching in the vessels. To learn more about Brian and James' work, you can check out a book that James co-edited, Metabolic Ecology, a Scaling Approach. You should also check out the NOVA documentary, Hunting the Hidden Dimension, which features Brian and his research. Now we turn to our final guest of today's program, Ron Eglash. 
Ron studies fractals in the realm of human-made forms. After noticing fractal patterns in photographs of African architecture, he got a Fulbright to travel through Africa to learn more about this phenomenon. He found complex math in a strikingly diverse range of cultural traditions. It was, it was a, a real eye-opener for me to realize that there was this uh, mathematical complexity, and not just in, um, not just in geometric form. Um, so, so there were even some symbol systems that were using the mathematical techniques you would use to generate fractals. My favorite example of that is um, Bamana sand divination, um, which is a fortune-telling system. So uh, you see these guys, uh, they're from uh, an ethnic group in Mali, the Bamana. Um, they'll be uh, spreading out sand and then drawing these little patterns on the, the sand. And then they'll tell you what your fortune will be. The core idea was that you would take these four symbols that you had generated stochastically just using random finger wiggling on the sand, um, and then you would bring those back into the symbol system. So if the, if the first symbol was 1111 and the next was 1212, you would read it sideways. So 1 and 1 are even. So the new symbol would start with a two-stroke. So they're using, they're using the same thing that you use in Boolean algebra. It's addition modulo 2. So you take two of the previous generated symbols, and that gives you a third symbol. Now you take that third symbol back, and you recursively put it back in the same equation, which is exactly what you do when you generate fractal. It's a, it's a recursive loop. So I thought that was really exciting that recursion was sort of at the heart of this symbol system, but it's also in the geometric forms that, that they, uh, they use in their, their art and architecture and so on. And, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're interested in um, the this, this sort of uh, self-generating aspects of the biological world, because life begets life, right? Your ancestors beget your ancestors who beget you. Um, and so under, understanding that there's this self-generating aspect of the world leads you both to uh, uh, self-similar forms and fractals, on the other hand, but uh, also this idea of, of uh, recursion as, as sort of an underlying property of the universe, on the other hand. An iconic weaving tradition from Ghana, kente weaving, also employs mathematical algorithms. We went to uh, a weaver's shop, and uh, uh, Bill Babbitt, the computer science student, conducted some interviews where he was trying to find out, um, you know, for example, if they weave a, uh, a, a, a triangle or, or just a, a diagonal line in the cloth pattern, as the loom advances, how do they figure out like how many threads to count over before you change the color of the thread? Because you're going to have to count over in a decreasing way, right? So the first row, if you count over by, by 50 threads, but the next one 49, the next one 48. And if you want a diagonal at a different slope, then you're going to have to make that decrement differently each time through the, the each pass of the iterative loop. Um, so, so there, there were some, you know, sort of uh, uh, numeric algorithms, just like you would expect a computer scientist to be thinking about, that were embedded in the, the kente weaving. Of course, they didn't call them algorithms, and and to them, it was so intuitive because they're they're learning through practice and and by by watching somebody and apprentice, apprenticing themselves uh, to a, a, a weaving master. Um, it's so in, intuitive that it actually took a lot of conversation before they really understood what we were after. Ron now works on translating these and other manifestations of mathematical processes in African culture into math pedagogy. 
His first project was a computer simulation of cornrow hairstyles. Here's why those are fractals, by the way. Each time you make a little plait, a little holdover of, of, the, of the hair, um, that can get smaller and smaller and smaller as you go back. Um, and it can do that in uh, a geometric progression rather than an arithmetic progression. So, so there's, uh, in, order to, in order to simulate it on the computer, you would have to, say, shrink it by 90% each time. Right? And so you make up a single braid by doing this nonlinear um, scaling uh, uh, operation. Then, um, if you have multiple braids, those can also be in uh, a nonlinear scaling pattern. So you have sort of scaling within scaling, and that's what makes it fractal. So some of the corners you look at, and they really aren't fractal at all. They're, they're just a bunch of straight lines. Um, some are sort of in between fractals and what you might just call a scaling pattern, um, and some of them have a truly fractal character to them. The computer simulations help students to develop a more intuitive, hands-on attitude to math. And it, it, it's interesting watching them sort of change the way they're, they're thinking about it through that process. We start with having them simulate the cornrow pattern, but the tool is actually a lot more flexible than that. And so a lot of the kids will go from there to creating just kind of abstract artworks or, you know, here's, here's a cool scorpion I made out of cornrow shapes or, or something like that. So it's really neat seeing the, the creativity and, and the, the flexibility that they bring to it. So that was the first, um, the first piece we did. And then the uh, uh, NSF, National Science Foundation, uh, uh, kindly uh, provided us with some funding for um, doing additional pieces and kind of expanding that. So now we've got uh, an African fractal site, a cornrow site. Uh, there's another one we recently did, uh, just this summer we were in Ghana, um, working with folks who do a dinkra, which is a cloth, uh, stamped cloth tradition. And the little um, patterns that they carve into the, these little pieces of calabash in order to, you know, dip it in ink and stamp the cloth, the, the, the uh, patterns often have um, nonlinear curves or logarithmic curves because they're based on things you would see in, in the biological world. So these sort of nonlinear scaling patterns that you see in... Um, uh, an, an ocean seashell or uh, the horn of a ram or, or something like that, um, then get imbued with some particular meaning. So it's, it's neat working with the kids, and, and we hope to um, take it off the screen and actually have the kids do some work with stamp patterns. My colleague, uh, Audrey Bennett, is, is doing that this fall. She has a small grant from Google uh, to work with art teachers and start looking at how to teach computer science through the arts. You can check out and play with Ron's interactive computer simulations to teach math concepts at his culturally situated design tools website, csdt.rpi.edu. That's it for today's installment of the Science in the City podcast. Thank you so much to our interviewees for sharing your work. We would also like to thank the Dana Foundation for their generous support and sponsorship of these podcasts. Science in the City is a not-for-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences, Visit us online at www.scienceinthecity.org or email us at scienceinthecity.nyas.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.